Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So, listeners, today's episode has a little bit of everything. The ballet, collecting vintage, exquisite hand embroidery, gender-bending fashions, the intersection of fashion and politics and integration, as well as cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation. These are all topics that we have covered in the past on dress, but today's episode manages to weave them all together. Yes, and our regular listeners will know usually our Fashion History Now episodes are structured around little snippets on recent articles or museum exhibits or a new book that just launched, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, today's episode, despite the seemingly disparate themes April just mentioned, is actually the true life and love story of two of our listeners who were actually profiled in Vogue last month. They're contemporary designers, collectors, and stylists. We are talking about Gabrielle Brandon Hansen and Jesus Herrera. Yep. And I was so happy to see this article in Vogue because Jesus and I had for a while kind of been messaging back and forth on Instagram because he was like, we love your show. And I was like, well, I love what you guys are doing. And then we just kind of started (laughs) talking back and forth a bit. So when I saw the Vogue article, I was so happy for them. And also it provided a little more background on their their story. And, And then suddenly I understood why I felt that connection to that work. And it's, you know, that thing when you recognize a fellow kindred spirit. I could not agree more. We're such huge fans of what they do and really the message that they bring to the art of dressing, which is why we're so pleased to welcome them to Dress Today to chat about their story of their decade of living and working in Mexico and launching their fashion brand, Le Jesus, in 2019. Gabe and Jesus, such a warm welcome to Dressed. Gabe and Jesus, welcome to Dressed. We are so pleased that you have decided to join us today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thrilled to be here. Um, so I first became aware of your work, or rather a little bit obsessed and transfixed with your work, when Jesus, you as a listener, reached out a few times via Instagram. And then uh, we do actually look you guys up when you send us interesting messages. So I looked you up. And <laughs> I, I started following more than one of your Instagram accounts. And before we get into those specific Instagram accounts and what you guys have been up to the last few years, I'm hoping that you can maybe both tell us a little bit about your backgrounds how you met, and how you first began working together. Well, um, I'll start, and I'm obsessed with your Instagram accounts also. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being obsessed. The obsession is mutual. (laughs) Um, I went to high school with two of of his brothers, um, and his younger brother introduced us when I was 18 and about to get out of high school, and Gabe was just exiting the Marine Corps. And actually, side note, while I was in the Marine Corps, my brothers and sisters who were hanging out with Jesus would tell me, they'd be like, you have to meet Jesus. And they would tell Jesus, you have to meet our brother. Um, He's a gay. He's in the Marines. Um, (laughs) And and we kind of both were like, yeah, because all gays get along, right? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But when we finally met, there was some magic there. Yeah. But yeah. So they, they must have known. So I met him when he was 
getting out of the Marine Corps, I was about to get out of high school. Gabe had just started a job with the ballet company, the Joffrey Ballet in Chicago. Um, not to be confused with the Joffrey Ballet in New York. <laughs> he had just gotten a contract for his first ballet and needed help putting it together. He needed help sewing it. And I knew a little bit about sewing. So I was the only person around that could help. Well, well and, and that begs the question, Gabe, how did you transition from being in the military to all of a sudden <laughs> working for the Joffrey Ballet? Like, what was that little piece of the puzzle? Well, so I had actually, how it happened was I had been in ballet school before I went to the Marine Corps. So I was in ballet school um, in the suburbs in Chicago and I'd gotten injured and it was around Christmas time. And I, I think I just, I was like, well, you know, I spent a semester studying painting and then I was like, I, I want something completely different. And I joined the Marines, uh, well, much to the chagrin of my friends and family. And it was kind of one of those things where I like didn't tell anyone until I'd already done it, you know? And then I was just like, Hey, I joined the Marines. And actually the Marines are not that different from a Russian ballet school. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually not that much of a stretch, very regimented and obviously very physically demanding emotionally, et cetera. But so when I had gotten out of the Marine Corps, I wound up making a costume for a friend of mine Sarah, who was in the studio company at Joffrey. And I made her a Giselle costume and the artistic director saw it and he said, hey, do you want to like pitch a ballet? We need someone to make a ballet for us. And so I did some sketches and I got the contract and um, that's kind of how all that happened. And also like as another tangent to that. We love tangents on dressed. It was an all Lycra ballet. And I had only ever learned how to make like classical tutus, like boning, you know, all that kind of like English style, very classical. So it was, it was an all Lycra ballet, unitards, leotards, et cetera. I'd never sewn Lycra. So as you can imagine, that first one was complete madness. And we were just like in the thick of it together. Yeah. Uh, For about six weeks. Yeah. It was six weeks. And I think like, I don't remember how many costumes, 36 or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's intense. And it just kind of like speaks to a little bit that I don't want to give away quite yet, but how your brand La Jesus kind of came to be. So what you were saying earlier about like how dancers have very physical requirements of these costumes that you guys are being asked to create, right? It's very specific. And, you know, I'm sure working for the ballet was very dreamy. You made 36 costumes, but like, can you tell us a little bit more about the specific production that you were designing for and what some of these costumes looked like? We were designing, it was a modern ballet. Um, I think at the time, a contemporary ballet. Um, At the time, the studio company was very interested in promoting their contemporary um, dancers and the the contemporary part because they all take very classical and rigorous um, classes. But I think that they were interested in, it was early, the early 2010. Maybe, yeah, it was 2010. Yeah. So they were all Lycra. It was Lycra, but we did, um, it was a ballet, and I think it's been renamed a few times, but at the time it was called On the Rocks. It was by Alexei Kremnev, and who's from Bolshoi, and ran the Joffrey Ballet Academy and studio company for a while. 
So it was all kind of like one of them we did was mimosa and it was this like pieced lycra that I sculpted on a mannequin and it had all these surged edges and like hand-sewn sequins and all these like ruffly. And then I airbrushed like a sunset, abstract sunset into it. It was a lot of wild experimental, I mean, rigorous from the beginning. We just, we went at it. We went at it. It was, yeah, most of the sets were named after drinks, right? Right. And it was, there was some music that I think Eric Satie and um, I can't remember all the pieces of music that were used, but as an introduction, it was fabulous. It was a great first go at doing a ballet. That's amazing. And how long did you stay at the Joffrey in Chicago? Oh man. We stayed at the Joffrey for eight years. We did eight eight full years. Yeah. That's amazing, you guys. That's that's not a short run at all. How many productions did you create? Well, you did 13, all the classics. Yeah, maybe we did all the classics. 13, we did a Sleeping Beauty. We did a Nutcracker, uh, Nutcracker. Cinderella, Capalia, Firebird, Capalia. All the classics. And then we did a few um, contemporaries in there and new works by new artists. Don Quixote. Choreographers. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus, you said that you kind of like barely knew how to sew. You kind of knew how to sew, I think is what you said. How how did that experience like inform your technical skills? Well, I was I was always just interested in clothes. Um, I think it's it's my first passion and it's the only thing that I really followed in my life and that I continue to follow because it it's like a not a fire that doesn't die within me, right? So I got myself a small sewing machine when I was 16 in high school and I started to play around with it. By the time that I met Gabe, I could do probably a straight stitch and a zigzag and he taught me how to use a serger. That's all that I knew. Well, I had just learned. (laughs) (laughs) But I taught him what I knew. That's all that I knew how to do. So So there was no technical skill there. It was just a passion. There was some. I mean, I think like one of the things about sewing is that other skills translate. So he was Mm -hmm. he was already good and like aware and and improved like really, really quickly. So all Um, my all my passion for for clothing just was going into whatever I was learning about it. Right. And we used like fishing line on Lycra and like zigzagged it on and did these like crazy ruffly things. It was all kinds of stuff. An experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds very Stephen Burroughs with his little lettuce edge hem, perhaps. Yeah, it's a, a lot. Bit, a little bit of that kind of like experimentation yeah. in that a lot direction. Of edges, lots of airbrush. It was, it was fun. Good. So you guys were there for eight years. Yeah. Yes. And then what happened? Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> well, we we only did the first production in the U.S. Right after we turned in the first ballet, we moved to Mexico. Um, so five months after meeting Gabe, I told him that I was leaving. He was a bit shocked, but I he knew why. The reason that I had to leave the States at 18 is because I didn't grow up legally in the, in the U.S. Um, my family is from Mexico. Um, my parents are from small towns outside of Veracruz. And when in the late 90s, my mom and dad both um, left Mexico illegally for the U.S. And in early 2000, my brothers and I crossed the Arizona border to get to where they were in Chicago. So I didn't, for the 12 years from the time that I was six until I was 18, for the 12 years that I grew up outside of Chicago, I didn't live 
in the U.S. illegally. And of course, we know we know that the immigration system is is flawed and it's very hard and tricky to get legal status in the U.S. for anyone who's come in illegally. Yeah. And this is this is before the DREAM Act that you went back to Mexico, right? And I was ready. I mean, I was ready to, I think after my experience in the Marine Corps, I was a little bit disillusioned and I was like, I want to, I want to go somewhere else. I want to experience a new place and see what life is like from, you know, through a different lens. So it's my understanding that two of you started doing a little bit of traveling. Is that correct? Yes. So we made it back to uh, Jalapa um, in Veracruz, which is the capital of Veracruz, which is where my family's from. And there, obviously, I had never come back to Mexico and Gabe had never. And we were living on a little street with his like grandma lived right across the street. All his aunts and uncles on the same street. They lived around like us. Everyone just in a little like a, a little houses in a row, which was a lovely experience. It was a small community. Yeah. Um, we started, re- we realized quickly that there was a lot being made in Mexico. And we, we were, we were still working for the ballet. So we were able to bring the work that Joffrey was giving us and make it in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then we would ship the ballets back. Oh, interesting. So a lot of this stuff was actually being fabricated in Mexico. All of it, except yeah. for the first ballet that we did for the wow. eight years. The Joffrey was made in Mexico, yeah. Wow. So not only did the fabrication in Mexico turn into a business once you landed there, you also started a few other businesses. Would you tell us a little bit about that? We did. So for, the, for a few years, it was just the ballet. Um, it wasn't until 2015 that we had been, we had been traveling um, first to local markets, then to towns outside of the town that we were living in. And then really we were going to communities looking for... Well, in the beginning, it was really just like these open air, like they're called tianguis. And it's just like the secondhand markets that, that, that the whole community assembles on a certain day. And um, we were going into these tianguis and just encountering all of these incredible things. And of course, coming from that Eurocentric, very classical handcraft tradition of like tutus and pleated tulle and just all hand basted and it's like hours and hours of all of this. I think I like I kind of understood what I was looking at and it was just phenomenal. I mean, the workmanship, like the the cross stitch or any of the weaving, any of the embroidery was phenomenal. So in the beginning, we we just started to pick it up. We were finding pieces for five and 10 and 15 pesos, which, you know, 10, 25 U.S. cents. And we were finding blouses, we were finding skirts, we were finding leather bags, we were finding watches, we were finding hand-woven stuff that was like shows. stained or ripped, and then we would like bring it back and do repairs and, and experiment yes. and and work with it. And we quickly realized that there was throughout Mexico, these treasures were still being made. There was still communities like in the south of Oaxaca, such as La Huaca, that still weaves their own fabric. They still weave their own cotton and turn it into dresses. We were figuring out that in Chiapas, wool blankets were still being made, wool rugs were still being made. So we started traveling to those communities specifically, first to see what was there because we were, in, we were just in love with, we've always been in love with textiles, embroidery and any kind of handcraft. And then 
we realized that we could we could make a business out of this. It was actually a friend of ours. We went to the Isthmus of Tehuantepec in southern Oaxaca for a festival called Avela, um, that the Mushe, which is the third gender of, of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, hosts every year. And we found pipiles, um, the, the, the kind that Frida Kahlo made famous around the world, mm-hmm. they, which is that they want to dress that's typical to that, to that area. Um, and she told us that we should have a business where we promoted these handcrafts because we, we were at, we had this big collection and we were like at critical mass and we're like, we can't keep, (laughs) we can't keep just like collecting and collecting. It was, it was too much, but it was so astounding. And we just kept finding more and more things and the variety, like, you know, where we would encounter things in the market and just be like, where is this from? And like, never seen anything like it. And especially, yeah, in Oaxaca, I mean, just phenomenal, phenomenal. We always say that Oaxaca is the, is the Paris of, of Latin America. The it's like the couture of, center of, of Mexico yeah. is really being made there. Yeah. Um, hand-dyed fabrics with, with roots hand embroidery. and hand-embroidered fabrics, hand-woven wools and all, like anything that you can think of it can be made in Oaxaca. Before I go on to my next question, Jesus, you mentioned the Mushe. I was hoping maybe you would explain for our listeners a little bit more who they are and why they are um, perhaps a little bit near and dear to your heart. So the Mushe are, they're considered the third gender of, of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, um, specifically in Puchitan. The Mushe are born male, but at some point in their early childhood, the family sees signs of, of not male or female, of another gender. So they're, they're named Mushe. And traditionally, they stay with the family to, to take care of the family. The Mushe have very full, very beautiful lives. They're accepted in society. They're honored sometimes for their, their, their special gift. Of There's being. even a festival um, where they crown the Mushes. They crown the, the Mushe, Queen of the Mushes. And I think I, they're near and dear to my heart because I don't identify as, as a male. Um, I identify as something else. Obviously, I'm living my life as a gay man, but um, in my heart, I think I do identify more with the female aesthetic um, and the female mind and energy in the world. So I think coming here and having grown up in the Midwest and realizing that that a third gender is living in the world and living their lives fully and openly and beautifully and respected to me made a huge difference. And it, it made a huge difference for, for my self-esteem and for what I could plan my life out to be in my mind. I think the, the first time that we were in Hushitan, um, we were leaving, it was the night we were leaving and it was around sunset and we were on the bus moving out of town and we were driving very slowly because of the traffic and there was a mushe sort of like setting up her bar and she was setting up her tables and like, you know, the chairs and everything. And it was like the light and this, this incredible Tejuana costume with all of the gold jewelry and the earrings and the braids and the ribbons and just. It's a very specific hairstyle. Yeah. Yes. And, <laughs> and she was so regal and so dignified and so unafraid and was such you could see her comfort and her dignity. And that was an, that was like life changing experience for us. 
to see that as as a part of society that was just was just there and, and to accepted see the, and, to see the respect and the acceptance from from men from other women from the community in in a matriarchal society which the Zapotec, um most of the Zapotec communities are matriarchal to see that way it was just life-changing for us and it changed the way that we we would begin to approach our relationships and our relationships with community our relationships with ourselves yeah and i think that like comes across that probably distinct experience comes across like in one of the things that captivated me about your guys's instagram post um especially for your vintage offerings is the fact that jesus you are generally the sole model. I, I, the first time I saw them, I was like, we're going to be friends. I, <laughs> I really like thought that. Like, And you guys are yeah. laughing at me now because we didn't no, know each no, other no. then at all. But I was just like, I can tell. I can tell. We're going to be friends. There's just like this ease that you exude in that moment, just like the Mushe that you were talking about. A lot of the times, like you were modeling traditionally women's garments. And, and so... Can you tell us a little bit about like what was that decision that the two of you made from a business standpoint that Jesus was going to be the model? Hmm. Well, it wasn't a business decision, um, and it was. Uh, what happened with this with the shop? We opened it in late 2015, and immediately it started to get attention. I think because the clothes were beautiful. And because they were underpriced, because we had never had a business like this before. And I think, too, because we were really trying to make it beautiful. And we talked about really representing like the full spectrum of what it's like to go to a Tianguis mm -hmm. and to see all the different kinds of things that are at a market, kind of like from everywhere. So it started to sell really well in the beginning, um, but we were photographing on a mannequin customers who were repeat customers um, a few months in were asking us to sending us messages and asking us to see the clothes on a human not on just the the figure the mannequin figures so I was very apprehensive I'm quite shy it actually I it doesn't come off as that you don't um, come off as that in the photos because <laughs> you're just so exquisite <laughs> Thank you. So in the beginning, I didn't want to be the the face, and I didn't he, want to be the image. He he kind of like he had he had to be pushed into it. Um, and one was, of our yeah. one of our friends, um, our a painter friend, Christy Luck uh, from LA, she was also really instrumental in convincing him. She was like, Jesus should model the clothes. You know, Jesus should model the clothes. Um, so we kind of started conspiring, you know, how to get him to do it. And I was still begrudgingly photographing on the mannequin. And eventually, you know, we, he was already wearing the clothes off camera. I mean, I think for as long as I've known him, he was always, even when we were first in Mexico, he was, would wear like a crocodile, stamped crocodile skirt that we got from the market or something. And he was always playing with that and wanted to know about that feeling and that experience and moved into dresses. So he was already wearing the clothes. And so it was just trying to get him to come out of his shell in terms of like, rendering that for an audience and, and letting it just letting it be what it was, you know? Yeah. I never, I never have worn men's clothes just because I, I, from the time that I was seven, eight, nine, I remember identifying so strongly with female clothes and the colors and the freedom and the skirts and the volumes. I used to look at men's clothes and they were so, they just were so not me. Women's clothes were so me. They, they, they felt like they were speaking to me and they, 
clothes really literally want to be worn a certain way. And I knew I could do that. How to wear them. How to wear them. Which I think definitely comes across in the photos. Yeah, for sure. Knows how to wear it. And that's part of the magic. I think I just feel, I feel normal and easy and natural in in women's clothes. And, And when I started wearing traditional clothes, it just felt like more of that. And so it's like, here you two are in all these markets, all over Mexico, immersing yourselves, you know, in these exquisite handcrafted traditional techniques that take a ton of time. So this was obviously for the both of you, a a really enriching experience, I would imagine. How did you go about learning where something was from, who made it, what made it important, the symbolism? I guess the crux of what I'm trying to get at is, is like, how did you begin to teach yourself this history as somebody who didn't necessarily grow up in this country? You have utmost respect and, and here you are and, and you're, you're, you're all in. Like, what was that learning curve for the two of you? I mean, it was good. We, we asked, first of all, when we're in the markets, we would ask, you know, sort of like, where is this from? Sometimes we would get an answer and sometimes, sometimes we, wouldn't. we wouldn't. So I would write it down. And then, of course, like a combination of Google and like all of those, those deep dives into, into that. And then, you know, putting on like our short list of like what was close and where we could go visit and what, you know, how we could dig into that and learn more about how things were made and who they were made by and what the symbols were and what the values were. So we would go to, first we went to Puebla to a town called Weyapan um, that weaves wool ponchos mostly and embroiders them in cross stitch. I would buy a few pieces and always ask to stay in touch with, with the family who was embroidering it, who was making, making the clothes, always through messages or social media. And then I, they would be showing us what they were making, sending us pictures. We'd buy more product and kind of start growing the, the relationship organically. When they start to, to trust you know, what we're trying to do or how we're trying to promote, send them pictures of how we're photographing the clothes. Which was like a wonderful surprises of like shock and bemusement. And just, but overall, very positive. It was wonderful. Yeah. That's amazing. So when did Umberto Leon enter the picture? And um, if you wouldn't mind explaining for our listeners who might not know Umberto, who he is, how did you first encounter him? And what happened after you first came in contact with him? So Umberto is the co-founder of Opening Ceremony Stores and the Opening Ceremony brand. And um, along with Carol Lim, Umberto and Carol were the first Asian Americans to helm a French fashion house, Kenzo, which was founded. Might have heard of it. You might have heard of it. A little little fashion house named Kenzo, just saying. If we weren't clear here. (laughs) <laughs> so in their last year at Kenzo, Umberto reached out through a message on Etsy, which is where, where our vintage shop is still located. And he asked us if he could buy a dress. And funny story, was, I thought I thought it was a total, you know, Jesus had told me, like, we got I, we got this message from this Umberto Leone. And he was like, Do you think it's the Umberto Leone? <laughs> and I was like, No. I was like, and he was like, I'm gonna hop on a call with him. Do you want to be here? And I was like, No, I have to go down to the shop. Like we have to, you know, I got things to do. Um and we, we little still, did we know. We were still working for the ballet then. Yeah, also. we were making um, so I got on the call with Umberto, not knowing that it was going to be the Umberto. And 
he was rushed because they were launching a perfume and he would, they were about to exit Kenzo. He told us that we, that he was doing the year of Mexico. So the year of Mexico was a curation of Mexican and Mexican American designers in the opening ceremony store. And he asked us to be their last ad to the curation. We didn't know what it was going to look like because he was looking at this dress that we had made. It wasn't a vintage dress. He asked us about the dress and I think he realized quickly that it wasn't something that we had found at a market or that we had found in a community. A few months before, so this was in in May, in March, Gabe had started experimenting with with some of the fabrics that we were getting from communities because we had always wanted to have a fashion brand, but we never knew how or where we were going to launch it. So we, we decided to start making clothes and that we were going to start adding them to our Etsy shop. Yeah. So we had this like um, this piece of taffeta that was, I call it bougambilia. It's like that fuchsia. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And we had a piece of embroidery that was kind of like a yoke. And so I was asking Jesus, you know, how he would like to feel and what, what a like modern, what he thought a modern would be um, or Tewana kind of thing interpretation would look like. And, and like, could you wear it with sneakers and could you wear it at night and could you wear it during the day? And so we just kind of made it and threw it up there. And then it all that happened. So Humberto asked us if we wanted to launch a brand, mm-hmm. essentially. And we said, yes, absolutely. And he said, well, in 21 days is when is the launch party and the clothes would have to be here then. So, <laughs> so we made 15 we made blouses and 15 dresses, 15 dresses in, in 21 days, all French themed, lined with tulle. Uh, so that you can see the embroidery on the top yoke. Hand embroidered pieces, yes. And, um, you know, after 21 days and very, very little sleep, Jesus was in New York and delivered a suitcase full of the dresses and blouses. And, and the opening ceremony store in New York. And went to the opening party. And that's how, that's how Le Jesus was, the brand was started. Yeah, and, 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 and this is the segue to what I said earlier about, like, you guys know something about work ethic and execution when it needs to be done under a short <laughs> amount of time. Yeah, yeah we work well in, in, in a panic. And <laughs> so the two of you have stated in the press that you feel like your work is political. And I want to explore that a little bit more. How so? Well, I think besides the fact that, that Jesus wears, you know, dresses and skirts pretty much exclusively I think that our connection to that aesthetic grew out of his natural inclination to to do that. He was already doing that. And that provoked a lot of thoughts for me. And we were in a part of Mexico that was sort of central Mexico. A lot of times, you know, he would get on the bus to go to school. Um, He was going to this little dressmaking school for about two years. And I would just be terrified. You know, I'd be terrified of him, you know, walking to the bus and getting on the bus in this dress. And of course, that raised for me a lot of questions about my you know, those fears or how radical it was just to see him like bye in the morning in his crocodile skirt. And, uh, (laughs) and I think it led slowly but surely to this idea that it was really probably men that need to be liberated at this point in history. Absolutely. And so like women can sort of, and we should say, generally speaking, and in Western culture, a woman can put on pretty much any garment, you know, in the vernacular and not really raise an eyebrow. 
but That's men, accepted. you know, it's, it's generally accepted and, and men are still stuck with essentially this Victorian costume. You know, it's, it's, it's the power suit. It's just a Victorian, uh, it really hasn't changed. And then Victorian workwear, which informs most of men's casual clothes, Henley's, you know, all these things, very Victorian. And I think that that's so significant because I think in the same way that, that women were sort of like entrenched in that, in that Victorian costume for so long. And that physical reality comes with, a psychological framework. It's a whole construct that really affects what people think um, in terms of what they're capable of, of doing in society, what their roles are, you know, the social spaces we can occupy mm-hmm. and what we're free to do. I think also men wearing a restrictive costume day to day affects their 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 mood it affects how they make laws um it affects so many things for the normal person it affects you know it affects healthcare it affects women it affects everything in our, in our society. i mean a, a three-piece suit for me like with a belt is just miserable yeah and also in summer what <laughs> yeah yeah oh. I mean, it's it really is oppressive. I really think um, that if men wore if men wore dresses, we would all we would we would see an improvement in society, an improvement in government, an improvement in in, in life and the quality of life around the world in general. Yeah, so I, it's a different experience. And I, I think a lot of our work is about moving that needle in that direction of like setting setting a post on the other side, you know, a radical other side point. And I think for both of us, you know, I had very strong experiences with clothes in ballet and then in the Marine Corps as well. Yeah. And those are like polar opposites in many ways. Right. Yeah. And and just that that experience of like being in uniform, being in camis and experiencing sort of what I observed as like the theatrical nature of it and how that costume really affected people's minds and what they believed that they were entitled to, what they were capable of, you know, it was very real to me. Absolutely. The political aspects of your work extend to many of the people that you now work with in terms of the embroiderers and the creators of different indigenous garments and silhouettes that you have collaborated with. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? I think that for us, it's very important to have transparency around that our, our work, anything that comes out of, communi- of a community is made by the community and it's accepted by the community that, that we will take a piece of the embroidery or a part of the iconography and transform it into something modern. But we have these conversations very openly and, and we try to have them respectfully because these are cultures that have survived for hundreds of years and these, these are handcrafts that are still surviving. Yeah, um, some longer. And I think longer. that it's very important to have, have that openness and especially in fashion. Fashion goes into communities. Fashion goes into places that are very marginalized and just appropriates. And I think for us, it's super important to not do that and to set a precedent for other brands to understand that this can be done in a respectful and in an economically viable way. For everyone. For everyone. Really? everyone. Yeah. Exactly. Everyone. 
Um, I think that national dress, as we like to call it, or as we know it, mm-hmm. is sometimes also seen as something lesser than, but the you know national dress is made, uh, a Chanel jacket is woven by hand, the fabric is woven by hand, and then a musgo dress takes three months to weave by hand, but you're looking at a musgo dresses that cost a hundred or two hundred dollars, and a Chanel jacket can cost up, right. upwards of twenty thousand dollars. This is the same time frame. This is the same technique. The cotton is treated the, the same. The craft. Way. The craft is the same, but because where we're seeing it come yeah, out of, come out of, there's a different. There's um, a different idea of what of its worth. Mm-hmm. And that that's what's been extraordinary for me. You know, going into the mountains and just with tailoring, etc., in the Bay Area, having worked with Prada and Chanel and Dolce and Gabbana, and you know, all of it, um, Valentino, etc. And really, you know, having that experience and then contrasting what, you know, what is the weave in the Chanel jacket like compared to, you know, and there's all kinds of tiers and levels to that. You know, it's not all created equal, but being in the mountains and seeing things that were that are just astounding, astounding in terms of the skill and the craftsmanship and the color. I mean, like the, the whole the whole process and just kind of wanting to do the correct honors. We get so many questions on the podcast from listeners about like, what is the difference between cultural appropriation and appreciation? I mean, uh, scores and dozens and dozens and dozens. And and one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you guys so specifically, besides the fact that I'm huge fans of your work, is because I think that you are doing that. This is the thing that fashion needs to understand is that you can go and and participate and appreciate and also like work with these artisans one-on-one-on-one and make it a win-win-win situation. It's possible. It's It's, It's just that, you know, the system is so broken right now that, that that is too much effort. It's too much work. It's just not part of the system, but I think that, that it will be in the future moving forward very much. So definitely will be. I think that it's definitely possible. We're definitely only approaching it from, from that stance. If the money is there, or if it's not there, that's, that's our first question. You know, it, how it's going to support to, the artisans. How it's going to support yeah. the artisans or benefit them to work yeah, yeah. with us. With us. Because we'll find a way to make money. We'll find a way to make our lives work. Right. But if we don't take care of the communities that are already not standing on two legs, where the government and the infrastructure isn't there for them, no one else is going to represent them in that way. We have to set that standard. And I think that we're, we are really careful about how we, we go about that in terms of we, we generally speaking approach artisans that we already have relationships with for the vintage and who are interested or, or willing to step to the side and to do something experimental mm-hmm. um, for Lake Zeus. And we do it on the side because we're not really interested in affecting or influencing the community's practice. Right. The practice of, you know, what they traditionally make. Because especially when economics get involved, that can hold sway. And, you know, all culture is conversation, of course, but we're really conscious of, of how we approach those relationships. I think when, when people ask me, because we still get these messages a lot, probably every week we get the same messages that you get about the difference between culture appreciation and appropriation. And my first response is always, and then a conversation starts, but it's always ask questions and be respectful. You know, when you're, when you're buying something, when you're wearing something from a different culture, 
Um, it has to come out of love and appreciation and respect. And the first way to respect something is to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, when we're in communities in Mexico, the the attitude or, you know, when we're having these conversations, there are ritual objects um, and we never buy ritual never touch objects. Them. Right, right, right. Because you guys are asking the questions. You're just not going in and scooping up pretty things and like getting the hell out. <laughs> right, right. And we do, you know, like we have ritual objects. We have some in our home, etc. things that we found at markets, but we don't resell them. And really the intention of the community in most of those situations is that, you know, they're like, we're making these things for, for you to wear. And it's consume. what we wear and to consume but they're making them for a wider audience and they like that that we like it they like that you like it they 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 want to share um and i think one of the things that's interesting is that for example like in the amusco dresses the the geometric forms and the patterns you know all of that is a a a pictorial and a cultural social language of what's valuable to them. And they're telling stories through that. They're symbols that are rivers and and different animals and birds and energy and time. So that's their way of putting their message about what they value in life out into the world. We might not understand it, but it's still the message being put out. We do our best to understand it and we do our best to to ask questions about what the symbolism of a flower is or why there's a bird there or why there's a tree of life or why there's a certain color. But the message is still going out, and that's that's what continues to be I think important. Too coming back to Le Jesus is that one of the ways of working with them or the rules that we have is that you know we don't ask them to embroider things or to to work in a language that's outside of their values. We don't say like, hey, can you embroider you know like this Western thing or or that thing or this thing or oil wells or something. We're we're not doing that. You know, there's a reason why for for hundreds or thousands of years they've consistently said, you know, flowers, trees, animals, birds, rivers, water, suns. I mean, they're still saying like, this is what matters. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the techniques and a lot of the silhouettes that you utilize in Le Jesus garments are distinctly and traditionally Mexican. But at the same time, they're so fresh and they're so contemporary. So I'm also wondering if there's other places that both of you pull bits of inspiration from, and and what are those? And 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 this is obviously something that Umberto picked up on immediately when he saw the the huipil that you guys were referencing earlier. He was like, "Oh, that's not vintage. They made that." Yeah, we're we're definitely looking within the communities and at the artisanal practice, but we're of this modern world, so we're always looking outside of it too. Right now, we're looking at. Um, Watteau's paintings and the Watteau dress specifically. And we're trying to place a relationship between that and the Weefield. It's a very similar shape, especially in um, like pre-Hispanic and going back into the pre-Columbian vernaculars. Um, There's very similar sort of like these pleated gathered at the shoulder, big falls. I have a pattern for them, by the way, if you guys want it, I can send it to you. Yes. Yes. So we're looking at we're looking at connecting what's really old and what's really new. We also we wear modern clothes too. You know, I wear sweatpants when I'm being lazy and eating ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's a there's a need for beautiful clothes that are made in in a traditional and exquisite way to also be modern to, for them to be to be worn or to be useful 
in, in everyday life. You know, we have different ways that we live our lives. Sometimes I spend my day in an office chair in front of my computer, but I still want to look good. I still and wouldn't it be an incredible moment to spend your day in that office chair in a huge, like, weepy <laughs> Taffeta wonder. And, you know, I do it. And that's a yes, moment. Let's do it. Make life a painting. Let's make life a painting. We're, we're trying to make these easy, dramatic moments because... Easy intro- drama. Easy drama. So good. Drama. And that's actually, that's one of like, that's one of the words or the phrases that we've developed. It's a recurring phrase for us. Easy, easy drama. drama. Is this easy drama? Well, and also too, uh, Future Vintage. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? That like caught my eye. Obviously, we'll probably reference this in the intro and I might cut what I'm about to say out. But um, I read that in the Vogue article and that was like, that was it. You guys got me. You pulled me in with the Future Vintage. Well, these are they're, they're just concepts that we come up with. They're, they're a poetic way of of using our it's a, it's a way of like we focused our we focused our values over time i think and yeah begin to to put them in language um like tony morrison or maya angela used to say you know like where the words you put out there should be tattooed on your body so you could see their impact in the world we're obviously trying to do that with words and with clothes and with um, future vintage i think that it's about really approaching everything from that heirloom quality space you know, nothing that we make is surged or or anything. It's all French seamed or pocket seamed or flat welted. You know, all the like the way everything is constructed is made to last time. And we have that conversation about, you know, like in the future, 50 years, 100 years in the future. It's, you know, hopefully it will still be here. And it's it's future vintage. I think that really all designers should strive for their clothes. If you're any kind of designer or any kind of sculptor, but specifically for designers, you should strive for your clothes to be in a museum. And I think that when, when, when a garment ends up in a museum, it says something about how it was conceived, the mindset that, that it was conceived in the time. It says a lot about the zeitgeist, but it says, it says a lot about its durability and its quality. And I think that that's how we're always. Well, that's also a message. That's also a message. And I think in our world today of fast fashion, that's also a radical message. Yeah, absolutely. That is a political statement. Yeah. It goes all back to your eyes. Garments being political. Garments are. Yeah. (laughs) So if any of our listeners are not already familiar with you, already not following you and your many Instagram accounts, how can they find you? How can they learn more about Le Jesus and both of you and your work? Um, I think mainly through Instagram is where we're putting our message out right now. So you can find the vintage at the vintage Jesus on Instagram. Um, And there we have a link to our Etsy shop where you can find all our amazing products. And the brand, our our fashion brand, you can find at lesjesus.mx. It's at L-E-S. J E S U S dot M X on Instagram. And then from there, there's a link to our, to our oh, dot com. Awesome. Well, last time I went on there, you guys were sold out of the hui peel that I wanted. So we oh, are. Let me know when they're back at the store. Yeah. We're working on, on, a, on the capsule collection of them right now. So they'll yeah, restock. You'll be the first to know. All right. Thank you both for joining us on Dressed. It was so lovely. And I just want to say that I think that uh, you two are perhaps the first 
listeners that we've ever had on the show who were des- contemporary designers. So there's that. That speaks to your work in, in my estimation. It's very fun. I love it. Totally spent. Thank you. That is a complete honor. <laughs> Gabe and Jesus, thank you so much for joining us. Well, that was beyond lovely April. After you got done chatting with them, you actually sent me a text message saying, the two of them are what the world needs. Yep. And clearly they put so much energy and care into every little decision they make. It really shows. Yeah. And I personally cannot wait to see what they do next. Whatever it is bound to be will be equally amazing, I'm sure. And I think that does it for us today, Dress Listeners. This is a little bit longer than our normal mini-sode, but may you consider the legacy of national dress that resides in your closet next time you get dressed. Please join us this coming Tuesday for our next full-length episode. And if, like Gabe and Jesus, you'd like to send us a message, you can do so on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. And you can also email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.